0: If you have a Bible and you would like to, let me invite you to turn to Luke chapter 2. We are continuing in our Advent season sermon series entitled God Spoke. So you see that on the screen. You also see our our door over here that has that message on it as well. And we're looking at not just what happened with the shepherds and the manger and the wise men and all that, but we're also looking specifically at what did God say? During this time, when the uh, when Jesus came to Earth, His first advent, what was the message, or what were the messages that God spoke? So, Tom Warner did a wonderful job two weeks ago introducing us to this. Followed up last week, and this morning we're going to be uh, looking at uh, two people in particular, Simeon uh, and Anna, and how God spoke to them. I was reading. Uh, rereading this week, some of Winston Churchill's six volumes uh, about the Second World War, War, entitled Triumph and Tragedy. Uh, And Churchill uh, wrote extensively about his experience and about other people's experience. And the point was not just to kind of rehash what happened, but to, to put some emotion into it and to put some uh, understanding into what people were feeling when they were going through this time. And, and some of it was uh, was victorious, obviously, and was triumphant, but there were other moments of great darkness. There were other moments that, that felt very tragic. And uh, I was reading this week about the, uh, the, the uh, Battle of London, which took place in 1940 between July and uh, October when the Germans tried to bomb the British into submission. And Churchill recounts uh, one time when he was in the, in the command center of the air marshal. So they're, they're maneuvering around all the squadrons and all the planes uh, as the Germans are coming to bomb London again. And, and Churchill wrote this. Presently, the red bulbs showed that the majority of our squadrons were engaged. A subdued hum arose from the floor, where the busy plotters pushed their disks to and fro in accordance with the swiftly changing situation. In a little while, I realized all our squadrons were fighting and some had already begun to return to refuel. I became conscious of the anxiety of the commander. Hitherto, I had watched in silence. There's a word you don't use every every week. Hitherto. Eric, when's the last time you said hitherto? Been a while? Been a while for me too. Hitherto, I had watched in silence, but now I asked, What other reserves have we? There are none, Air Marshal Park responded. In an account in which he wrote afterwards, he said that at this, I looked grave. Well, I might. The odds were great, our margins small, and the stakes infinite. Uh, Churchill speaks of a moment which we look back on now and remember as ultimately a very victorious moment for the Allies and for the British in particular. We, we recall to mind, if we've studied a little bit of history, uh, Churchill uh, talking about the, the, their finest hour, and never in the course of human history have so many owed so much to so few, speaking about those squadrons of pilots that went up time and time again. In this particular battle, they felt it was an amazing victory because they had lost only 40 pilots and they had shot down 183 German aircraft. We look back on these moments and we see the victory. We see the triumph. But in that particular moment, nobody was sure which way things were going to go. We're going to look at a passage of scripture this morning that is part of a place in the Bible where we go to that is filled with great joy. It's filled with great hope. It's filled with, with uh, a longing that's going to be filled in the coming of Jesus. And, and therefore, because of that, all the way down to today, 2,000 years later, we have boxes with bows and poinsettias and lights and candles, and we sing of the light of the world, and we have the tallest Christmas tree in Kirkwood out in front with the lights going, and, and we, we talk about celebration, and right, we should. But it's important for us to remember that as Jesus stepped onto the planet in the form of an infant child, it wasn't all triumph. In fact, part of what God spoke was of the tragedy because of the sin of mankind. So we want to look this morning at both the triumph and the tragedy and the message of God as he gives it to us out of Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Hear the word of God. Speaking about... Mary and Joseph, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they, being Mary and Joseph, brought him, being Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple worshiping and fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word to him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we have sung of the light shining in and piercing the darkness. When we speak of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, we talk about it in, in terms of light, in terms of revelation, in terms of redemption and salvation. And well, we should, Father, because that is how it is described in Scripture. But Lord, as we're going to see this morning, there, there is a dark side to our salvation. There is tragedy along with the triumph, which is under your providence. It is under your divine will. Uh, and yet it is something that at times we uh, neglect to see. Uh, we get wrapped up in the, in the glitter and the beauty and the glory that is Christmas, uh, and at times we fail to remember uh, that it is prelude to the cross and to the darkest moment in history when the most innocent person that ever walked the face of the earth was executed and bore your wrath because of our sin. And therefore, Father, we also have the glory of the resurrection. But may we not look past uh, the darkness uh, for fear that we would excuse our own sin and and, and fail to realize our need for a Savior. Father, we don't come here to hear the words of man. We come to hear your word. It is your word that is eternal, that stands forever. So I pray, Father, that you would uh, keep me out of the way of harming anyone's understanding, that you would forgive my sin, Lord Jesus, that you would come and teach us. We pray in your name. Amen. So here's where we're headed this morning. Uh, God's word to and through Simeon and Anna calls us to an ever deepening faith that accepts both the triumph and the tragedy of redemption. The way I want to look at this passage this morning is through three different lenses. The first is I want to look at the players. Who are the people that are involved? Who are the the characters in the story? And I want to say characters in the story. It's not a made up story. It happened in in the history of the world, as it's written here, on the pages of Scripture for us. So I want to look at the folks that are involved in this particular event. Secondly, we want to keep in, in, in theme with our God spoke. And so the second observation we're going to make about this text is, what did God say? How did he speak to the folks that are involved in this particular event? And then thirdly, we want to see God speaking, but in a little bit different twist, in that God is warning us of some things of which... We must be aware. So let's begin with the players. Who are the folks involved in this particular episode in Scripture? Well, it says, When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem, To present him to the Lord and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. So the first two people that we're introduced to are the parents, uh, Joseph and Mary. Mary being Jesus' natural mother, Joseph being Jesus somewhat of his stepfather, and that he was not the natural father of Jesus, but he was married to Mary. Jesus was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit and gave birth as a virgin. So we have Mary and Joseph, and they're showing up at the temple eight days after Jesus is born. Now, if you've read, uh, the account, uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, or excuse me, earlier in the, uh, in the book of Matthew, you see Joseph doing some pretty extraordinary things. If you were here two weeks ago, you heard Tom Warner preach on that. He did a wonderful job. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to go online and listen to that sermon. But Tom mentions that Joseph kept having these dreams and God kept telling him to do, you know, pretty crazy things. Uh, Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant. She was his fiance, and he knew he wasn't the father. So he was going to divorce her quietly. wasn't going to make a big deal about it, but he was going to divorce her. And God said, don't do that, Joseph. Just take her home to be your wife. And Joseph said, okay. Think of all the gossip that would have been going on in that village about Joseph and, more importantly, about Mary. And yet Joseph said, Okay. Then God said to Joseph, there are people that are trying to kill Jesus, so go live in a foreign country until I tell you to come back. A country where you don't speak the language and you don't know anybody, but go there to keep Jesus safe. And Joseph said, okay. (laughs) Joseph did some extraordinary things by faith. This isn't one of them. Joseph just showed up. He went where he was supposed to go and he did what he was supposed to do according to the law of Moses. There's nothing spectacular about this verse. But friends, Sometimes being at the right place at the right time is enough. Sometimes what we ought to consider is the simple things of life. The author of Hebrews says, don't forsake the gathering together of the fellowship. Come together on a regular basis. That's why we come together and we worship every Sunday. That's why we have this service. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have classes. Because we're supposed to come together. Why? For our own good for our own edification. So something as simple as saying, you know what? Let's just make sure we're in church every Sunday. I know we go on vacation occasionally. I know we we have, we have some things that pop up from now and then, but let's not change our schedule on Sunday for a whole bunch of other things if it means that we're not gonna come together. I read an article this week about millennials not being involved in the church. And there was a litany of reasons why they weren't. And it was a really good article. It talked about some things that churches need to pay very careful attention to. And, and as I'm reading it, I'm saying, amen, amen, amen. But there was one thing that the article didn't, uh, didn't speak to, and it's this. The millennials were actually the first generation to come along where, where we as parents said to them, church is an option. We, we might go on Sunday, but we might have some other commitments, and we might not. And one of the reasons that millennials care so little about church is because they didn't have it modeled for them. They didn't see their parents saying to them, you know what, no matter what else is going on, we're going to be together in worship and we're going to build our our lives around the worship of God and not the temporal things of this world. So I'm preaching at you a little bit this morning, friends. (laughs) Show up, be there. Mary and Joseph didn't do anything spectacular here. They just were at the right place in the right time by the providence of God. Sometimes it's the easy opportunities that we ought not miss. But not only are Mary and Joseph in this story, but there's also a guy named Simeon. Look at verses 25, 26, a guy in Jerusalem, his name is Simeon. But here's the definition of Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. In this particular context, righteous means that he was a good guy to his neighbors. It meant that if you came across Simeon's path, you're walking down the street in Jerusalem, Simeon's walking the other way, he's going to look at you and he's going to say, good morning, and he's going to call you by name because he's remembered your name, and he's going to ask you about your family, and he's going to check on you, and he's going to see how you're doing, and if you have a problem, he's probably going to say, you know, I'm going to pray for you about that. He was a person that cared well for other people. The word righteous here is talking about the human relationship. And it says that Simeon was really a great guy. Think about somebody that you know and love and respect because they, they just seem to care for everybody around them. That was Simeon. But it also says that Simeon was devout. And the word devout here means that he was very careful about his faith. Now notice that doesn't say careful about his religious duty. Notice that doesn't say he was really careful about the obligations that God laid on him to do the right things. It says that he was careful about his faith. He trusted god in all things and so here is simeon one who is righteous in his treatment of others he is devout he is careful about his faith and he's and he's going to see the messiah Uh, i spend a good chunk of time every week as most pastors do working on my sermon preparation. Now, I know you'll say, well, some weeks you work better than others. I get that. I understand that. That's okay. I agree. Sometimes you do your job better than others. You might not uh, stand up in front of folks, but I'm okay with that. But I spend a lot of time with it, not just because I want to feel good about what I say, but I don't want to get the word of God wrong. (laughs) The thing that scares me is not standing in front of people. Y'all are delightful. And even if you snarled at me every once in a while, it wouldn't scare me. It does scare me to think that I would tell you something inaccurate about the word of God. But do I feel the same way about my life? Do I feel the same way when I walk out these doors and I'm driving down the street and I'm interacting with people in public? It's one thing to be careful about your faith. It's one thing to be careful about the word of God. But it's not all. What if my life doesn't reflect the grace that I preach, then I'm missing something. And Simeon had both of those things you would say he's a great guy as a next door neighbor and he really loves the Lord. That's how Simeon is described. So we have Joseph, we have Mary, we have Simeon. And then later on in verse 36, we're introduced to another person, a little bit less in the story, but still important. There was a prophetess. Her name was Anna. Uh, She was of the tribe of Asher. Now, Uh, I'll save you the time. I say you go back this afternoon and get out your concordance and look for prophetess. You're only gonna find it three other places in scripture that are mentioned in a positive way. There are a couple places where uh, there's an evil prophetess, but that, if you're talking about just the good ones, there's only three. We have Miriam, who's the sister of Aaron. We have Deborah, who was one of the judges in the nation of Israel before the kings came on the scene. And then when Israel starts going downhill, And and every time you read in in the Kings, you're like, this king's name was so-and-so and and he did more evil than the next guy. And then this guy's name was so-and-so and he did more evil than the next guy. That's where you'll find Huldah. She was a prophetess in a really difficult time in Israel. And here, the announcement, the public bringing of the son of God into the temple, God has a prophetess on hand to announce the coming of his son. She is in very select company. And if you read scripture carefully, there's only going to be one other prophet in the history of the world, and that's John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist is done, it stops. So here's a woman of God who speaks God's word to his people. So she's involved in the story as well. So we have Joe, we have Mary, we have Simeon, we have Anna, but there's one other character in this story, and that's God himself. It had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit. And he came to the temple in the spirit. Luke is very careful to help us understand that this is not going to be Simeon's word to us. This is not going to be Anna's word to us. Whatever unfolds in this story, it isn't gonna be about Joseph's opinion or Mary's opinion. It's going to be about the work of God and the word of God to us. And so throughout this passage, we understand very clearly that God is speaking so those are our players, Joseph and Mary, Simeon, Anna, and the Holy Spirit. What does God say? Our second observation in this text is about that about which God spoke. In verses 30 and 38, we begin to see some hints as to the message. Simeon says, "My eyes have seen your salvation." As Anna begins to speak in the temple about what she is witnessing and what God is saying to her, she speaks to him, speaks of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the language we have here. God is speaking and he is speaking language of grace. He is speaking the words of mercy. He is speaking words of compassion. Simeon doesn't say, and now your judgment is going to be released. He doesn't say, and now your wrath has come. He says, God, you are still seeking and saving the lost. When God speaks in this passage, he speaks a message of salvation. He speaks a message of redemption, but he also speaks of the, the nature in which that message is to be given. He goes on to say, Simeon says, my eyes have seen your salvation that you prepared, where? In the presence of all peoples. In the presence of all people. Anna begins to speak to of him to all, right? So, have you ever had this experience? You got a whole bunch of people coming over for a Thanksgiving dinner or, or a Christmas dinner, and, and, and it's public in so much as that it, it's, you know, 20 or 30 people from your family, and they're going to walk in the door in about 30 minutes, and you smell something funky, and the turkey has been burned, right? What's on public display now? (laughs) Your failure as Chef Boyardee, right? Have you ever had an experience where everybody's looking at you and it just doesn't happen? I have nightmares sometimes about standing up here less than fully clothed, okay? I'll just tell you, that that's one of my nightmares that, that happens. If you've ever been put on the spot, right? You just say, I just wanna shrivel up and be in a hole somewhere where nobody can see me. And when God brings his salvation, he doesn't do it quietly. He doesn't say, let's kind of keep this hidden in case we mess it up, <laughs> right? If we don't get it, then we can start over and nobody will know the difference. God says, my son is here and it's in the presence of everyone. The gospel of Jesus Christ is public. It was public then and it's public today. Anybody can walk in these doors and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And anybody, for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, ought to be able to hear it from our lips, from our mouth, from our heart, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, right? It's public. It's public. If you grew up in church, do you remember a song called This Little Light of? Okay, right? So, we're not gonna sing it because I have a terrible singing voice, but we're gonna do a couple lines. This little light of? I'm gonna let it? Hide it under a bushel? Hide it under a bushel? You're getting there. Hide it under a bushel? That's how you did it when you were six years old, right? I'm gonna let it? shine right the gospel's public it's public in our words and it's public in our lives and God is very clear about that he's not hiding anything but notice that it's not just salvation and it's not just public but look at verse 32 Simeon says this a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel who's on the outside looking in in that equation nobody I would guess, I don't know, but I would guess that there are more Gentiles in this room this morning than there are people of Jewish heritage. I don't know, I might be wrong, but whichever side of that coin you're on, you're invited in. You're not on the outside looking in. I want to take you back to Genesis 12 for just a second. And we looked at this verse last week from a little bit different context, but God is speaking and he says, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be Blessed. What God is saying there is he's pointing to the coming of Jesus. But notice who's blessed. All the families of the earth. If you skip way down the road into Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah's time, he would have been around the same time the Huldah was prophesying. And it says this, And to the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, their offerings will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all peoples. right? So you and I are kind of careful about who we let into our house, right? Like, and, and, and even if people that we love come into our house with muddy, dirty shoes, what do we say? Stop, take those shoes off, right? We're not gonna mess up the house, right? God doesn't say that. God says, you, you might be a mess. You might spiritually be an utter disaster and a complete failure. Why don't you come on in and sit down next to my fireplace, All right? This is for everybody. If you've ever been in a situation, you know, whether you're in high school and you wanted to be in the cool group and, and you weren't, or, you know, you're, you're in business, but you don't get invited to the, to the top meetings because you're not quite there yet, or, or some people invite you uh, to their house, but with other people, you don't quite get that invitation, right? You're not invited. That's not how God sees you. God says, everybody's welcome at my table. In my house. When God speaks in this passage, He speaks salvation, He speaks redemption, He speaks it publicly, and He speaks it for all humanity. But God also gives us a warning in this text because so far, pretty much everything we've looked at is pretty triumphant, and it is, and we should celebrate that. But there's also a voice of warning here. If you look at verse 34, Simeon blesses them and he said, behold, this child appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Now, there are dual meanings to these words and we need to understand both of them. The first is this. We think about the word fall and the word rising. The first thing that Simeon is pointing to is a pathway for salvation. So if you're standing in heaven and you've died and you're standing there and God says, why should I let you in? Give me one good reason to let you in. What are you going to say? What's your answer going to be? Well, I did some good things. I worked kind of hard. I put some money in the offering plate when it went by. I didn't, didn't do as many bad things as other people. None of that's going to get you into heaven. Jesus is going to say, this is, you're going to maybe think this is weird, but I don't even know who you are. You, have, you didn't have anything to do with me, right? Getting into heaven is not about your ability to earn your way. And getting into heaven is about falling on your knees and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's repentance. It's brokenness over your sin. It's acknowledging that you need a savior. And you can't do that with a proud heart. You can't do that and say, you know what? I'm, I'm really something. You can only do that in utter humility. And so when you fall, when you repent, when you humble yourself, how does God react to that? God raises you up, right? What does James say? Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So some people are going to repent and what's gonna be the the end of their brokenness and their their humility of heart is going to be actually new life. It's going to be salvation and the grace of God applied to them for all of eternity. That's the first meaning, but there's a, a second meaning that's a little bit scarier. And it means this, that their choice about Jesus will either bring life or it will bring judgment. For those who refuse the offer of grace, there is no other pathway. God doesn't throw out a smorgasbord. God gave his only son on the cross. We're gonna talk about that price in just a minute. In order that you and I could have salvation, how dare we look him in the eye and say, that's not good enough. I want a different way. God says, if you go that pathway, you'll fall. You'll fall under my judgment. But those who rise will rise because they have put their faith in him. They joyfully accept the mercy of God. So God warns us with this language this morning, to be humble and to repent and to have new life in Christ, to not reject his offer of grace. But he also mentions the opposition that Jesus is going to face himself. Says this, that that Jesus, this child is a sign that is opposed. And in John chapter 5, we read, this is later on in the life of Jesus, the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal to be God. So the the people around him, the religious leaders of his day, hated him with a passion. They tried to make his life miserable. They wanted to take him out because they were so angry about the fact that he said, I've come as God's son. In a different passage of scripture, a little bit later in John chapter eight, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. Those are the religious leaders, the pastors of their day. They got all pastors together and they're arguing back and forth with Jesus and they can't figure out for the life of them what he's saying and who he is. Finally, like, who are you? And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Now, let me give you just a real quick lesson. If you don't know that phrase, when Moses uh, met God at the burning bush in Exodus. And Moses said, okay, I'm going down to Egypt. You talked me into it. I don't want to go, but I'm going to go. Now that's my paraphrase, but that's what he said, okay? I'm going to get there and they're going to say, well, pff, there's a bunch of gods. What God sent you? I don't even know your name. What's your name? And and, and and God spoke to him through the burning bush and he said, I am that I am. In other words, I've always been and I always will be. You tell him I am sent you. So now, fast forward to Jesus. He's he's having an argument with these pastors. And they're like, "Who are you?" And he says, "I am." <laughs> and they picked up a bunch of rocks and they wanted to kill him, right? I know you've walked out of here some Sundays and gone, you know, Tom really could have worked a little harder last week, but you haven't yet picked up rocks and thrown them at me, right? Not to give you any ideas, <laughs> okay? But that's how that's how much Jesus was opposed. So when you say, Tom, I, I, I don't like sharing the gospel because people oppose it and, they, and they, they look at me funny and they look at me like I've got three heads and, and it just, you know, it hurts my social standing with people. Well, in all due respect, take a number and get in line behind Jesus. People wanted to kill him. We need to understand as disciples, if that's the pathway for us, God is warning us that there will be opposition in our lives. If Jesus felt that opposition, so will we. He also is pointing out here that Jesus... The, the, what, what opposes Jesus is pride. But the whole passage reminds us that, that to humble ourselves before God means salvation. And so Jesus in another passage where he's teaching, the sign is this, whoever humbles himself like this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So if, if pride opposes God, humility embraces him and so we begin to see that that there's going to be a challenge in our life here but now we come to verse 35 which speaks of the terrible price that must be paid for your sins and for mine simeon is talking about jesus and then he looks at mary and i'm sure he looked her right in the eye and he said a sword will pierce through your own soul right now what pierces a mama's heart (laughs) what pierces a daddy's heart right I get a little upset that the Blues haven't figured out a way to win the Stanley Cup. Okay, I'll be honest. I gripe about it all the time, right? Doesn't pierce my soul. (laughs) If I die and the Blues don't have a Stanley Cup, I'll go to heaven. I'll be just fine. And it'll be y'all's problem if we're still alive, right? Something happens to my kids and I can't fix it. That's a whole different deal. That can be crushing to us. And Simeon looks at Mary and says, you're not getting out of this unscathed? This one that you hold so dear. It's going to crush you. And he's speaking of the terrible, terrible price that must be paid because you're a sinner and I'm a sinner. Because we've said to God, no thanks. We've gone our own way and we've offended him and we've hurt each other. And for that price to be paid, Jesus had to give his life for you and for me. And he speaks to uh, this crushing of the soul speaks to the cross. C.S. Lewis said this it cost God nothing so far as we know to create nice things but to convert rebellious wills cost him the crucifixion. I get a little choked up when I read that. We had a Christmas party on Friday night with a staff and we had to like act out a staff member and you had to guess who it was without them saying, yeah. So what did somebody stood up? With, and Everybody went, Tom, <laughs> no raises next year. Um, <laughs> but Lewis is right. It, it costs God everything. And we need to understand that in a day and age when the world says just being comfortable and being okay is the highest goal. Just avoiding pain, just, just trying to, to numb yourself from any hurt and sorrow is, is really what your life ought to be about. I want to uh, read for you very briefly out of First Peter, and I'm not going to put it up on the screen. But he speaks to this, to this uh, triumph as well as this tragedy. Starts out by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's caused us to be born into a a new and living hope through the resurrection of Jesus uh, to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled. It's unfading, it's kept in heaven for you, uh, who by God's power being guarded through faith until it's revealed at the last time. And so you rejoice. That's the triumph. Everybody goes, amen, preach it, Peter. And then he says this, but even though for a little while now, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's the tragedy. Peter says, you got something great awaiting you. But I know that your life is filled with trials and tragedies. And then he comes back to the triumph. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So he comes back, he bookends it with, our, with the triumph, but in the middle he says, there will be personal tragedy in our lives on the journey. I have an associate named Andrew Brunson. I've only met him one time. He's an associate, he's not a friend, but he's a fellow, a fellow EPC pastor and I've mentioned him. Uh, We need to continue to pray for Andrew Brunson. He's a missionary in in Turkey. And uh, he was in prison several months ago, but his wife was finally getting in to see him in the jail and the State Department was working on it and talking to the Turkish government. And uh, completely out of the blue last week, they moved him to another prison and nobody knows where he is. I can't even begin to get my mind around that. But I bet he's in that jail cell praising God in the midst of the tragedy. Why? Because I know in his heart he knows the triumph even in the midst of the darkness. And I know there are people at Green Tree that that are struggling in our own family right now. You've lost someone this year, your business is struggling, you're estranged from kids. We have all kinds of just regular life tragedy. And the gospel doesn't just immediately take all that away, but it gives us a context, gives us a hope, and it's a sure and a certain hope. And so our lives need to heed the warning of God because today the players are different. None of the players in this story, save one, are involved anymore, right? Simeon, Joseph, Mary, Anna, they're all having a lot better time this morning than you and me, right? Even though we're in church having a great time, right? But they're in the presence of Jesus. But the one player that was in this story that is here today is the Holy Spirit of God. And he continues to speak God's truth to you and to me. It's a message of God's grace that's free for us. Terribly expensive for him offered to all. And we pray this morning that it would deepen our faith, that would humble our hearts, that it would give us a relentless passion for the lost and a perspective on suffering that would quiet our souls. Will you pray with me? Father, we bless your name this morning for your grace and your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the times when we uh, ignore the suffering part of the gospel. And we, uh, we lose our perspective. And perhaps we get anxious or fearful. Perhaps we get angry. And Father, I'm, I don't want to discount our suffering. But it's important that we see what you have spoken in this passage. You're not hiding it from us. There will be moments of struggle but they're in the context of the triumph of the cross, the triumph of the resurrection, the triumph of the first advent of Jesus that will lead to a second advent and will lead to a glorious uh, reunion with him that will last forever. So Father, we pray that you would nourish our souls with your word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if if before you heard the sermon, I, I asked you the question: Is the table of Jesus a table of triumph or a table of tragedy? Uh, you might have guessed one or the other, but but a lot of you probably would have said both. In fact, I heard somebody right there just say it. Thank you, Will, for being a great theologian this morning. That's exactly right. It's both. The tragedy is that the cross had to occur. That's that's the hard part, and it and it had to occur. Not because God's a mean God, but because God's a righteous God. And he's not going to turn away and look the other way when you and I hurt each other. When we gossip about each other. When we, when we cheat each other. When we abuse each other. He's not going to ignore that. He's not going to allow that to go unpunished. But the, the triumph is that he took it upon himself so that we could be forgiven. And so we come to this table this morning remembering both. And resting in, in all of the reality that is the Lord's table. This is not Green Tree's table. This is Jesus's table. So if you're a believer in Jesus, you're invited to His table this morning. If you're not a believer in Jesus, maybe somebody's invited you to church and you haven't really thought about it that much. We don't want you to feel like you've been put on the spot. You know, now I'm in church. I gotta, I gotta do a church thing. Uh, please don't feel compelled to do something that will be of no value to you just because you happen to be in a certain place. Uh, you can allow the elements to pass by and would invite you to spend time thinking and contemplating and praying about uh, God's love for you and his grace and his mercy because as we said from Luke's gospel, it's, it's for everyone. Uh, but in that context, let me remind us that we come to the table with humble hearts, with grateful hearts, with thankful hearts, with repentant hearts. We fall so that God would allow us to rise. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, this opportunity in the Christmas season to celebrate your supper. We thank you that you you call us to this, to remember. But you also call us because somehow spiritually you are present in these elements and you nourish our souls. And it is that for which we pray this morning, that you would set these elements apart from their normal use of, of feeding uh, our physical flesh, To feeding our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I'm passing on to you what the Lord Jesus passed on to me. The night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread and after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. Do this in remembrance of me. This is my body, which is broken for you. After they'd eaten, he took the cup and when he poured it, he passed it. To his disciples, he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. All of you drink from it because as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm going to ask the servers if you would begin to make your way forward. And while you're doing that, I'm going to give a couple of instructions to the congregation. Okay, that's your cue, servers. Come on this way. Uh When the bread is passed to you and the cup is passed to you, we ask that if you're participating that you take one of each and pass it along. If you need gluten-free elements, they're kind of tucked under the napkin, but they're in there none the same. Uh, And we would like for you to hold the elements, hold the cup and hold the bread. And after everyone's been served, we will partake together.